Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went down to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is God's word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, while we pray together. God, we are grateful this morning to be gathered together, assembled, and united as a people under the Lordship of Christ, redeemed by His blood and brought with Him into the kingdom which You are establishing. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our midst this morning, that you would help us to see the truths that are presented to us in this passage, and that we would be drawn close to you for for having seen the truth of the gospel and hope of Christ here in this passage from 2 Corinthians. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. In 2019, a pitcher from the Washington Nationals named Daniel Hudson made headlines when he announced that he would be skipping a playoff game. As a relief pitcher, he was a player that was brought into games during the final innings, when the game was close and when every single pitch could mean the difference between victory and loss. He was an important member of the roster, someone that both coaches, fans, and teammates looked to when the, when the game was on the line. But rather than going to the playoffs that October, he went to Scottsdale, Arizona. It was a decision that caused a stir in the press and within the fan base for that team. What could possibly be so important that he would walk away from the most important moment of his career? This was the team's fifth ever trip to the playoffs, and they had never won a championship in over 50 seasons. But in 2019, things were looking good. The team was actually pretty good. Most of the players had avoided injury, and they had momentum as they headed into the postseason. Momentum that could easily be disrupted by the absence of an important player. But this pitcher's mind was made up. He was going to Arizona to be present for the birth of his daughter. In response, an executive from another team said, it's unreal that Daniel Hudson is on paternity leave and missing this playoff game. The only excuse would be if there was a problem with the birth or the health of the baby or the mother. If all is well, he needs to get to the game. It is inexcusable. That executive was right about the fact that missing a playoff game is a big deal. It's a big deal to miss something you've worked your whole life for, something that you and your teammates are excited about, something that they need you for, and which is your first and maybe only chance at a championship. So when Daniel Hudson skipped the game, he sent a message to the whole world about what his priorities were. 
Even as important as winning a World Series might be, he said, there are some things that just rank higher. In a similar way, the Apostle Paul is sending a message to the people of Corinth in the opening of our passage this morning. He's still in the middle of his response to slander that has been spread about him in that city, among rival teachers there who see him as a threat to their livelihood, who have mocked him and disparaged his teaching and scoffed at his work as a laborer. They've divided the church in Corinth into two groups, those who follow Paul and trust the word of the gospel that has been proclaimed by him and those who join in mocking him. It is a divide that has threatened to tear the church apart. So Paul responded to it, not to vindicate himself, but for the sake of the gospel and the health of the church there. As he said in the passage that we looked at last week, in chapter 2, verse 5, he writes, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. He knows that the people there are losing sight of the gospel while they bicker over his tattered clothes and his shabby appearance. Well, they fall into old prideful habits of climbing the social ladder. So the harm that has ultimately been done has not been harm to Paul, who, as we'll see this morning, has nothing to lose, but has been to the people of the city who are drifting away from the message of salvation. And Paul, who loves this church and this city, cannot sit by while this fellowship disintegrates. So he wrote them a severe letter of rebuke, a letter that was stained with tears and full of the hope that the Corinthians will stop all this bickering and jockeying for power and prestige and the upper hand over others in their fellowship. He wants them to know that that way of thinking has no place in the church precisely because it could not be further from the example that has been given to them by Christ himself and which is to be modeled by his people. He sent that letter to Corinth in the hands of his friend Titus. Now, Titus would have delivered the letter to Corinth, read it there among the people, and then stayed for some time afterward to discuss it with the believers there. And then afterward, he was to meet Paul in the city of Troas, across the Aegean Sea from Corinth. So we read in verse 12 of our passage this morning, Paul writes, "'When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ,' Even though a door was opened to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. Paul arrives in Troas, eagerly waiting for his friend Titus to arrive to their appointed meeting place with an update from Corinth. You probably know the sort of anxiety that he's feeling as he waits there for Titus to arrive. Even though modern technology makes this experience a little different, it's still something I think we understand. When we are waiting for news or an update on something that's important to us, it's hard to think about anything else. I recently sent an email to someone asking an important question. I knew that I wasn't likely to receive a response the same day, but I couldn't stop myself from checking my email like every five minutes, right? Pulling it out of my pocket and just, just checking to see if there was a response there yet. I was desperate to see that reply pop up in my inbox. Paul is desperate like that. Every day that he wakes up in Troas, he's looking for Titus to arrive. The letter that he apparently sent was very severe. He knows that it will either spur the Corinthians on to more righteous character, or it will drive the final nail into the coffin 
of his relationship with them. That's the risk that he's taken. As Bruce talked about last week, Paul has disciplined the believers there in his love for them, but he cannot control their response to that discipline. And it's because he loves them, he is anxious to get an update from Titus on how that letter was received. But day after day passes without Titus's arrival. Paul says, my spirit was not at, at rest. So I took leave of Troas and went in search of Titus. Now, this is a subtle but significant detail. Paul had an open door for ministry in Troas. People were apparently inviting him to speak more about Jesus and about the gospel. This is literally the dream scenario for a man who's given his whole life to do exactly that who has suffered for it and labored until his body was weary to preach in towns just like this one. And he walks away from that opportunity to find out what is happening in Corinth. He leaves the people of Troas to wait for someone else to come and tell them about Jesus and to share the hope of the gospel with them. That detail is significant for two reasons. The first of which is that it reveals to us how disputes And disunity within the local church can have ripple effects that we could have never predicted. This infant church in Troas was left floundering because Paul had to address what was happening among the believers in another city. Though we may think that disunity and conflict are problems whose effects are limited to those who are directly involved, we see here how people across a sea are made to bear the burden of what is happening in Corinth. Much could be said about that, but I will only note that unity within the fellowship of the local church is a precious thing that ought not to be taken lightly. Secondly, Paul's decision to leave reveals his deep and abiding love for the people of Corinth. He is a man who's given his life to the cause of proclaiming the gospel in towns just like Troas, often his, his effort was met with hostility. He is physically and mentally scarred from the abuses that he's endured along the way. He has been chased out of countless towns and faced death on numerous occasions, yet he endures because of his love for Christ and his love for the lost. So an open door to preach in Troas was a gift. He was being welcomed in by people eager to learn more who had hearts open to receive the message of salvation. It's hard to think of anything that Paul treasured more than that opportunity. Yet he says, my spirit was not at rest. And he left for Macedonia, a midway point between Corinth and Troas, where he hoped that he would encounter Titus. Like a professional athlete walking away from the most important game of his career because something else was more important. Or perhaps, more directly, like if one of my neighbors, who I love and desire to see in a thriving relationship with Christ, knocked on my door and asked me what it means to know Jesus and where this hope in my heart comes from. There is almost no place I'd rather be than right there having that conversation. But if I got a call that my kid was in the hospital, I'd say, let's find a time next week. I have to go. For Paul, the thing that just cannot wait, the thing that makes it so that he cannot rest, is attending to the pernicious division among the believers 
in the city of Corinth. Paul's concern for what is happening there and for the health of the Corinthian church compels him to leave everything else behind. Now, he won't mention until chapter 7 that he did meet up with Titus and that the news he received about the Corinthians was really good news, that they had begun to repent of sin and turn toward God. Paul's letter apparently had its hoped-for effect. Rather than driving them away or driving them to reject him further, it startled them to the point that they were willing to see their own sin and begin to repent of it. So Paul says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. At first glance, this verse seems to indicate that Paul is saying something like, in Christ we always triumph, and now the knowledge of Christ is spreading in Corinth. But I don't think that's how the people in Corinth would have read this verse at all. This is a situation where just a little bit of historical context goes a long way. Because a triumphal procession was a specific and well-known tradition in ancient Rome, and one which the Roman citizens of a city like Corinth would have been very familiar with. Ancient historians took detailed notes of these events, and there are records of them in uh, the primary source material all over the place, because they were a mark of Roman pride and the belief that the empire would never fall. A triumphal procession was a parade, kind of like the ones that Patriots fans used to have back when they celebrated a Super Bowl victory. When people packed the streets downtown to cheer on the team as they come home with a trophy. In ancient Rome, after a successful military conquest, when the generals would arrive back home to the city, they were welcomed with a similar type of celebration. People would pack the streets, generals and commanders would ride in on horseback to the deafening cheers of the city. The smell of incense pouring out of temples throughout the city would remind the people both of their belief that the gods had blessed Rome in its conquest and that this was a time to give thanks to the gods for their support. And coming along behind all the generals and leaders of the military were carts full of loot and treasures that had been taken from vanquished enemies and exotic animals imported from, from far-flung parts of the world. These events were so important that they were actually carved into stone to stand as a monument for all time that Rome was victorious. When I was in Rome just a few years ago, I saw for myself the Arch of Titus, which still stands near the Colosseum. It was built to commemorate the life of the emperor's brother, and it depicted some of the most significant events from his lifetime, including the triumphal procession in the year 71 when Jerusalem had been sacked and its temple plundered. Carved into the arch are soldiers carrying a menorah and other prized items from the temple, which had just become the property of Rome. But these parades included more than treasures. Coming along at the back were the chained kings and governors and generals who had been captured in battle and were on their way to execution. They were made to participate in the triumphal procession as a sign of the strength of Rome and proof of its victory. To be led in a triumphal procession is to be defeated, captured, and made a living sign of the power of Rome. So when Paul says that God leads us in a triumphal procession in Christ, he is not saying 
that we are triumphant. He's saying that Christ is the general, the commander, and that we are his conquered enemies. I'm confident of this because of the way that the word for triumphal procession is used in lots of other historical sources and the way it is used in its only other occurrence in the Bible and another passage written by Paul. In Colossians 2.15, he describes the way that Christ has claimed victory over the devil himself, saying he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That word translated triumphing is the same word for triumphal procession. It's a complete victory over the enemy of Christ who is put to open shame as the sign of Christ's supremacy. Paul said that word applies to us in 2 Corinthians 2, to Christians. For readers in Corinth, a city driven by, motivated by, the acquisition of status symbols and social standing. This was a scandalous idea at worst and odd at best. Paul, seems, Paul sees himself as a conquered enemy who at one time stood opposed to the gospel, who persecuted the church and hated Christ himself, but has now been brought into Christ's service, demonstrating in his very existence the power and supremacy of God's Son his captor. Through the life that he lives now, everywhere he goes, the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ is spreading. In fact, he says, that is true of all Christians. Just as those who looked on the captured kings being marched through the streets of Rome, who smelled the incense being wafted over them, and who understood by what they saw that the emperor was victorious, now those who look on Paul and all of God's people are able to perceive the victory of Christ. It is something that Paul gives thanks for in verse 14. He is relentlessly thankful. Even though his life is full of suffering, his body covered in scars, and he lays awake at night fretting over the souls of people in Corinth who have abused him. For the people of that city, this is a contradictory and incomprehensible mindset for someone to have. They were immersed in a culture of climbing to higher levels of prestige and influence and well-being in this life. They fought tooth and nail for what they considered to be better lives. And here before them is a man who willingly admits that he has been conquered by Christ and paraded around as a captive to prove the supremacy of his captor and whose life, his old life, was put to death in order to be replaced with one filled with pain and misery in service to his new master. And he is thankful for it. He thanks God for being led in this triumphal procession for years and years of suffering and humiliation and stress and poverty. In this verse, we get a glimpse of the heart of the message of 2 Corinthians as a whole, that God works through and reveals the message of salvation through weak and cracked vessels, and that as he does so, all glory and honor and praise and adoration are attributed where they belong, not to Paul or to any other flawed messenger, but to the one who is leading them in triumphal procession. It's the inversion of everything that the Corinthians think about what it means to have a good life, 
And what Paul wants them to see is that even if they do lose everything else, even if they are made to feel the sorrow of grief as they follow Christ, they will have gained Christ, and in that they will be satisfied. All of that is packed into the phrase, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Paul is thankful because he, has, he knows that he has nothing left to lose and absolutely nothing more he could possibly gain. In Christ, everything he used to prize has been stripped away. Everything he used to build his life on, pride himself on, and strive for has been laid aside. And in their place, he is satisfied with Christ alone. Elsewhere, Paul describes this exchange using colorful language, saying, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He does not lament his poverty. He's not bitter over threats to his life. In the loss of wealth and comfort, he received Christ, and he rejoices in his gain. This is what Paul wants for the Corinthians, who he loves so dearly. To be able to lose everything else, their status, their reputation, their possessions, their accolades, or even their loved ones, and still to say, in Christ, I have gained so much more than I might ever lose. It's what I think he's talking about later on in this letter when he says that despite his intense suffering, he is sorrowful but always rejoicing. Mourning over the loss of what we love, but truly rejoicing in the sovereign goodness of Christ who for his people suffered the loss of everything. I think Paul is alluding to this in our passage in saying that Christ leads us in the triumphal procession because he is both the conquering king and the first among his people who lose all things for the sake of the salvation of God's people. Paul is, Paul is following in this parade that Christ is leading, in which Christ is the first, the first to lose everything. And now he is a captive of Christ, who has likewise lost everything, yet rejoices in his gain. Such is the heart of all who belong to Christ. When some of the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem in the very first days of the church, they were threatened with death, they were beaten, and afterward they left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. It's a mindset that the people in Corinth simply cannot comprehend, at least not yet. For them, Paul's life is a model to learn from, a model of joyful reliance on Christ enduring the hardships of life but not all will see it that way. Certainly not in a city like Corinth. For many there, Paul's life is one to be mocked, sidelined, not emulated. He represents a failure, not a leader, a tragic figure to be pitied, not a teacher to submit to. Paul knows that. He knows that even if this church does become healthy and united, many there will still reject him and his message. Because he says in verses 15 and 16, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and the other, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Some will look at Paul, 
at the life that he lives, and they will see or smell a pleasing fragrance, like roses or apple pie or whatever smells good to you. Others will only smell spoiled milk. They are seeing the same man, they are smelling the same aroma, but their conclusions about him will be completely different. For them, for these who smell spilled milk, spoiled milk, his life will represent despair and death and the loss of everything they love and failure in life. It will be to them an utterly dysfunctional life, not the sort of thing that they would want for themselves or anyone else that they care about. And isn't that true today as well? Don't we see the truth of Paul's words here in our own lives every day? There are those who look at us, who hear about what we believe, that all humanity was in bondage to sin and under the judgment of God, and that God answered that desperate need by stepping into it himself, and that the blood of his Son atones for our sin, and that we receive that forgiveness by faith to such a degree that we are not only set free from guilt, but from the chains that held us bonded to our sinful nature itself. They hear that we are willingly going without things that they consider treasures, that we sacrifice for one another and for the glory of God, of our resources and our time and our tears, and that we rejoice in our sufferings, trusting in the sovereignty and the wisdom and the goodness of God who not only ordains the things that we dread, but works His good ends through them. They hear that we gladly identify ourselves as slaves to Christ, members of His triumphal procession, longing for a day when we will see our captor face to face that we can praise Him, and they say, how could anyone believe that, let alone be happy about it? For some, a life lived under the Lordship of Christ is the aroma of death. It is a life lived in chains. For others, the very same thing is the aroma of life. It is freedom from the chains of sin and guilt and shame and darkness. We live the truth of these words, and we see it in the responses of our friends and our neighbors in our submission to Christ. Paul shudders at the sheer magnitude of the responsibility that he and all Christians have been given as we live in the midst of this tension. And he says in verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? I think this is a rhetorical question. He's not looking out there for someone who is actually qualified, because no one is. No one is fit to carry this burden. Paul knows that he is a cracked and flimsy vessel chosen to carry the good news of all eternity. He isn't seeking to defend his ministry in Corinth by saying that he is suitably qualified or tough enough to handle the job. He is pointing to the way he knows that he is not, but that by depending on Christ, he is able to do what he's been called to do. And he makes that point in this passage's final verse. <clears throat> For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ, he says in verse 17. Packed into this one verse, Paul is saying a lot about his philosophy of ministry. He starts by saying that he isn't a peddler of God's word, that word in Greek has as much of a pejorative sense as it does in English. It conjures images of used car salesmen or door-to-door -door vacuum salesmen or telemarketers who are, who are hawking extended warranties for your car. I think that this line is intended by Paul to be a not-so-subtle dig at some of the other teachers who have made their way to Corinth. It is an important imperial hub 
a hugely influential port city, and there was lots of money moving through town. So naturally, a place like that attracted people who saw a financial opportunity, especially among a divided and disjointed church there. They have come to make a profit, to peddle the gospel for personal gain. Paul has made clear that he isn't about that. He's refused to take a penny from the Corinthians, choosing instead to work a trade to support himself while he ministers there. Paul is a different sort of teacher from what they're used to. And he offers three ways why his presence among these people there has been different, why his ministry there has been different from what they're used to, and which also make him a trustworthy herald of God's Word. First, he says that we are men of sincerity. There is no ulterior motive for him in this ministry. If he had wanted worldly gain, he could have had it in his old life. He was a scholar, a Pharisee, and a well-connected, well-respected up-and-comer in Jerusalem. The sky was the limit for him. But now he lives a life he's described in 1 Corinthians 4 as one full of suffering and toil, in which he is considered by many of those he reaches out to as the scum of the earth. When he proclaims to these people that Christ is worth everything he has to give, there is no insincerity in his mouth. He means it, and his life proves it, just as ours should when we share the gospel. Are we satisfied with Christ? Do our lives reflect it? If we lost things that we treasure, would we still say that we are satisfied because we have Christ? Is our witness to the world that Christ is our treasure or the blessings that he might give? No one had to wonder that about Paul. Secondly, he says he is commissioned by God. I don't think Paul is pulling rank here, even though he could. The apostles were given unique and significant authority in the first century church. I think Paul instead is getting at something else, that his ministry was not his idea or the product of his imagination. Given the choice, he probably would have favored something a little less brutally difficult than what he endures as a missionary extending God's kingdom. He remembers the day that Jesus confronted him while he was on his way to persecute Christians in the first days of the church. And he knows the ironclad truth of God's word when he said that he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of God's to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul is a man under orders. And though as an apostle, His orders were specific. There is a general principle in view here as well. All those led in the triumphal procession go where we are called to go, to carry the purposes of the King who we serve. It is not the product of our imagination or our desire. Third, Paul knows that his ministry is carried out in God's power, not his own. He says, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is likely a subtle reference to the prophets of the Old Testament who communed with God and relayed his word to the people. Paul sees himself as following in their footsteps. One close to God who does not speak on his own behalf, but is a vessel, a conduit for God's word to reach his people. He will echo this idea later on in the letter when he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, he will say in chapter 5. Paul is not putting himself on a pedestal here. He is not suggesting that he is more righteous or more beloved by God or closer to God than other Christians are, but instead is merely relaying the Word of God to these people faithfully, proclaiming to them the truth of the gospel revealed in Scripture and in the life of Christ. The Corinthians do well to listen to him because God is at work through this lowly, shabbily dressed, unimpressive servant. It is a model for all Christians, even though the specifics of our various callings are different. We are called to share our faith, to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere we go, and for our lives to reflect that we are following Christ, and that we are called to speak, not from our minds or what is in our hearts, but with faithfulness to the Scripture, relaying what God has revealed. Evangelism requires speech that is sincere, whose energy and strength comes not from us, but from Christ, and which is rooted not in our hearts, but relies entirely on the Word of God. The gospel is the power of salvation, Paul will write elsewhere. Nothing in me, nothing in my heart or mind can be that for my friends, my neighbors, or myself either. So like Paul, we see ourselves as vessels of God's Word, vessels of His saving message of salvation. As Paul is attacked and villainized by some in Corinth, he lets his life prove his authenticity, his sincerity, and his faithfulness to God and his love for these people. And he does so so that what they will see in him will be Christ and what it means to be led by Christ in triumphal procession. His life embodies the notion that in Christ we have lost everything that that old life was laid aside. But Paul knows that, that Christ is worth that loss. He is a treasure that is worth more than everything else Paul might lose, and so much more. He walked away from a ministry opportunity in Troas because there was something more important for him to attend to, and his choice reveals his love for the Corinthians. Now he rejoices to be led in a triumphal procession, the loss of his old life in exchange for one that is filled with suffering. It is a choice that will cause people to wonder, some with awe and some with disdain, what could be worth such an exchange? What does Paul consider valuable enough to exchange his whole life for it. Paul's joy reveals the satisfying, surpassing worth of Christ. And the same is true for all who come after. And the long line of those captured by Christ and led in triumphal procession. Those whose old lives have been laid aside and who say along with Paul that we have nothing left to lose and absolutely nothing more to gain. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray this morning with grateful hearts. You are sovereign, and you have conquered us. Lead us now in a procession in this life that will bring the fragrance of Christ to the world, in which the supremacy of Christ will be evident in our lives, and in which we strive to proclaim the good news of the gospel in in faithfulness, in sincerity, and in the hope that you will extend your kingdom through our lives. As we go, Lord, strengthen our hearts and strengthen our faith. Draw us near to you so that when we encounter trials in this life, 
we will find our satisfaction in you unchanging and immovable. We ask these things in the name of your Son, who is our salvation and our hope. Amen.